Transmission of disease-causing pathogens via feed ingredients has garnered a tremendous amount of study in recent years. With the specter of African swine fever in the minds of every U.S. pork producer, understanding the survivability of viral pathogens in a variety of vectors is critically important to adequate biosecurity on hog farms. Welcome to Feedstuffs in Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and animal feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us today. This episode of Feedstuffs in Focus is sponsored by Topics Norsven. Swine genetics company Topics Norsven is renowned for its innovative approach to implementing new technologies and its continuous focus on cost-efficient and sustainable pig production. Research, innovation, and dissemination of genetic improvements are the cornerstones of the company. For more information, visit TopicsNorsven.us. Dr. Scott D. is a veterinarian and a researcher at Pipestone Applied Research. He and his colleagues have done as much or more study into the role feed ingredients play in viral transmission than anyone in the business. His most recent paper looked at a case study in which Seneca virus A was introduced into a historically negative country via soybean meal imported from a positive country. In this episode, we talk with Dr. D about the findings from this case study, how they apply to U.S. swine biosecurity efforts, and what veterinarians and producers need to do more generally to achieve what he describes as next-generation biosecurity. You know, Dr. D, uh, we had a chance this week to gather at the Layman Swine Conference. You were one of the presenters there. I think we both agree it was a, it was a great conference and good to be back together. But one of the key focuses of the meeting, which I, I think has been the case more and more in recent years, has been on the topic of biosecurity, and that's because we seem to be dealing with um, in a number of challenging disease issues, number of you know, viral disease issues, uh, some persistent challenges in the swine herd. You presented there on the topic of biosecurity and also shared about a recently published study you and your colleagues at Pipestone uh, have published on Seneca virus in pigs from a historically negative national swine herd and then talked about uh, the association of feed imports from endemically infected countries that published in the journal Transboundary and Emerging Diseases. I wonder if you would give us uh, the, the the summary, the the abstract, if you will, of what you and your colleagues were studying in this particular paper. I'm very happy to. I do. I do appreciate the time and and uh, looking forward to a few minutes with you, Andy, and your and your listeners. I hope they find it interesting. I th- I think they will. I think this paper of anything we've done in the last eight years or more, I think has has potential for a far reaching impact. And it, it it's because it's it's really the first time where we've shown that feed could introduce a virus to a naive national swine herd following importation of feed ingredients from a endemically infected country, which the reason why this is so novel is because it's the real world and it's not an experiment, it's an actual event that occurred in the field. And you know, because you've we've talked about it a lot, we've modeled this many times in the laboratory with many different viruses and many different feed ingredients, moving them, you know, simulating movement of them from Asia to North America and Eastern Europe to North America, you know the story. But this actually happened 
So <laughs> that's why I'm going, oh my gosh, we got to talk about this because it really is like a smoking gun type of a story, which we rarely ever get in the scientific community. What was the the impetus, I guess? How did we start putting together this this project and what were the what were the questions maybe that were we were trying to answer from the outset? Yeah. So first of all, for everyone's knowledge, I cannot divulge the countries that were involved, nor can I divulge the production, pig production company that was involved. So that that has to remain confidential. I'm quite confident that will re- be disclosed at the right time, but that was the only way they would allow publication of this case. So I agreed. So I really wrote this paper almost like a newspaper reporter. I wrote I wrote it up as it happened and used their data and their, their approach to solving the problem. And I wish I could credit them because they did a great job, but I couldn't. So... I'm just telling the story. I just wrote the paper. So it was, I'd never really been in that situation before, but this basically was the introduction of Seneca virus A, which we know is a relative of foot and mouth disease virus. They're basically the same type of virus. And this Seneca virus A entered a nationally naive swine herd. So the, the whole nation, of the recipient country that imported the feed was had never seen the secular diseases before, nor had they ever diagnosed Seneca virus before or foot and mouth disease virus before. So that's an interesting point. Number two, the second interesting point is the ingredient was soybean meal that was imported into this country. And that's that's important because many of us have shown how protective soy products are for viruses, how well viruses live in soy products for extended periods of time. And the third interesting point is the soy originated from a country that was uh, known to be positive for Seneca. It had published the presence of Seneca virus in its commercial feed system and, you know, clinical episodes of, you know, several years ago. So those are really important facts about this case. So I hope I made that clear. And you have done, I mean, a volume of work at this point on the survivability of a number of these disease pathogens, disease-causing pathogens in various feedstuffs from various points around the world. When you when you were covering this case, I like that analogy of following it like a, a journalist would and, and telling the story. As you were following this case, did did this unfold the way you would have expected based on your body of research on the way these pathogens behave in, in these various conditions? Or was was there anything novel here that jumped out at you as you were following the story? And it basically acted just like you would predict it would. So, for example, before I even got involved in it, the, the, the process is already of importation had already occurred. So the negative country had imported the soy to this production company, pig production company had imported the soy. They started to 
formula, use it in formulating diets and began to feed pigs. And then they began to see evidence of uh, vesicles on the snouts of the animals that were consuming the diets that the soy had been used to formulate. And they tested and found out it was not foot and mouth disease, but it was Seneca. And so it really behaved just like you'd think it would. The, the stuff came in, it got mixed into the diet, the pigs ate it, and they showed clinical signs. It was just like a, a natural feeding bioassay that we've used for experimental purposes to demonstrate viability through the pigs consuming the contaminated feed. So it behaved exactly the way we had modeled it in the laboratory for several years now. So it was striking how similar this event was to what we had published and re repeated many times in the laboratory. One of the things I thought was interesting as I was reading the paper, uh, when you look at the, the samples that they did, the PCR testing of, of dust samples during the diagnostic investigation, uh, more than 40 samples from different things from imported soybeans to, as you were discussing their soybean meal, uh, and meal from both positive and negative countries, uh, imported micronutrients, vitamins, amino acids, minerals, anything and everything that you might have thought about, um, warehouse floor, driveway, feed mixers, and so on. But the thing that jumped out at me is that it was the, the meal from imported countries and, uh, and interestingly enough, uh, one of the tote bags from important amino acid, that's where you found the positive samples. Uh, and, and again, that sounds like it lined up pretty well with maybe what you would have expected when you're looking as to, Hey, where, where did this stuff come from? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, and I have to give credit to the veterinary team from the production company. They did all the work on the sampling. And again, I wish I could put them on the paper as co-authors, but uh, hopefully that'll happen later. But they went out, you know, they studied the literature. They looked at ways that feed could be sampled and they assembled some devices to collect dust and used grain probes to collect core samples uh, from all of the spots that you just described. So they actually went out and, and I think did a very comprehensive uh, sampling across many different areas. Uh, not just bulk ingredients, but also micros. Like you said, the environment on the pig farm and the feed mill and equipment. They also went into their poultry facilities and their plant facilities and did some sampling there as well. I think they were basically trying to see, has this Seneca virus been here for a while? And have we kind of just cross-contaminated everything? Or is there a single spot or a single sample type that is going to make that may come up virus positive, which, as you said, was the case. Only the Seneca, I'm sorry, only the soybean meal that had been imported was positive, as well as one very weak positive sample from a tote bag. Uh, the, the strong, the, the real strong positives came from the soy meal. So, uh, but it, it, it raises a good point that you know, fomites such as containers or tote bags could possibly also be vehicles for these viruses as they move from place to place. But the, the fact that they only found the Seneca really in one strong positive, in, in several strong positives in, a one, in one spot, and everything else was free 
of, of the virus tells me, and they agree that um, that's the most likely way it got in, not just to the farm, but to the country. And, that, and that's what's really important. We're not talking just about a single farm here. We're talking about a country, a country that had never had this disease in the past. Yeah, that that to me was seemed like one of the key takeaways, because you're talking about the first potential link, as you described in the paper, between entry of a novel viral <laughs> agent to a naive national swine herd. Um, you know, things that that keep you up at night, I guess, if you're, oh. uh, you know, swine veterinarian, public health veterinarian, and so on. W what do we do with this information now in terms of how this either reinforces or further informs what you and, and the veterinary community are trying to do to keep the U.S. pig herd safe and, and make sure we're doing everything we need to be doing in terms of biosecurity on farms? Yes, that's the, that's where the rubber meets the road. So this was like a big time wake up call. That's the first way we should think of this. The company was very, for, the country was very fortunate. This wasn't uh, FMD, that this was only Seneca virus. This could have been FMD. This could have been ASF. This could have been something much worse than Seneca virus. And the good news is the, the production company is dealing with it very well. It's, it's well under control. They'll probably eliminate it in the, in the very near future. So things are going well, but this is the wake up call. This is what not only their country needs to remember, but our country and any country that uh, raises pigs and imports products from countries of potentially lower health status uh, due to other diseases that aren't present uh, has to think about this. It really validates all the lab work we've done and kind of says, yep, that might have been in the lab, but it basically replicated what actually happened here in the field. So it's a wake-up call. It could have been much worse. And we really have to consider feed and feed ingredients as true vehicles for viral entry, not just from farm to farm anymore, but from country to country. So those are some of the big picture take-homes that this, this case, I think, is, will bring value to everyone. Well, and you, as I mentioned at the top of the program, were presenting at the Lyman Conference this week on the topic of biosecurity to, to try to bring this full circle and, and really put it into perspective. What were some of the key things you were sharing with your veterinary colleagues there at that conference in terms of, you know, what, what the next steps level? One of the things I worry about, just as an aside, is that we've been on high alert for so many of these challenges for so many years you worry about complacency if you will or or biosecurity fatigue do do people come to these conferences and think gosh i've heard these presentations so many times that they just tune out how do we how do we help keep folks engaged and vigilant to the degree necessary given uh the seriousness of the issue as you described in this paper yeah that's that's important so keeping people vigilant and waking them up to me this case is like a perfect example of why we need biosecurity uh this was more of a transboundary example and i talked about it at layman as an example of, of the need for transboundary disease biosecurity but i also talked about you know just how what's in what's other ways we can deal with domestic diseases such as pers virus which is which we're really not doing a very good job in uh, at a national level with PERS 
And what I presented was kind of a, a multi-layered approach. We call it next generation biosecurity and Pipestone. And it really looks at taking all the knowledge we have on the mechanical risks of PERS spread. So trucks, people, boots, supplies, you know, putting a plan in place across all of the, all of the information about the mechanical way the virus can enter the farm. And layering upon that an aerosol biosecurity plan, so air filtration. So you set your mechanical program up first, then you layer on your air filtration program. And now the next generation is to layer on a feed biosecurity program based on the work that's been done from many of us, but also now this case has shown that feed is a real, the real deal. So it's kind of like taking your farm and layering multiple uh, biosecurity plans, one on top of each other, building a comprehensive next generation approach. Again, mechanical first, aerosol second, and feed, because it's the most recent discovery, third. So that's kind of what I talked about at, uh, at Lehman and uh, and I think it went really well over really well. People, people can see that. And I challenged the audience. I said, where are you in this? Do you know the science in all of this, you know, all of these routes of transmission? Do you know the biosecurity programs? Have you applied them to you or your clients' farms? Where are you in this next generation? So I think it was, I think it went over well. I got a lot of good feedback, but it, to me, it's, it's a good way to look at how do we biosecure farms? It's not just one layer or one approach. It's multiple layers, multiple approaches, a comprehensive science-based approach. And it's funny. I love how you describe that because it sort of reminds me when we were first dealing with, with COVID mitigations, uh, I saw a great diagram as like layers of Swiss cheese that, mm -hmm. you know, there are all these different holes where a pathogen can, can get through uh, mm -hmm. But if you have all of those layers stacked up on top of one another, the layers you just described in the biosecurity plan, then, you know, you can, you can really make something happen there in terms of, mm -hmm. of biosecurity. But if you don't have all those layers in place, you got a bunch of holes in your system. Yeah. Yeah. And I th that's, that's a great uh, metaphor. Um, the, the other information we discussed at layman to, support this approach was I actually shared our pipestone data from the University of Minnesota Swine Health Monitoring Project that Dr. the late Dr. Bob Morrison started. So we participate in that and you're familiar with it every week. These farms that are involved, they send their PERS outbreaks in and you get, a, you get a, uh, some reports back on how you're doing versus how the collective industry is doing. Uh, the collective industry is at about 25% incidence of PERS, which I think is not very good. But this last, this last year at Pipestone, using this approach with the mechanical aerosol and now feed, we actually got down below 10%. We, went, we actually finished the year at 7% uh, in, infections. And so that's the best year we've ever had. And looking back historically at our purse breaks, you know, we used to we, we used to start at about 50% and now we've pushed it down to below 10%. I think because we've layered these biosecurity plans on top of each other, just like I described theoretically, the mechanical, I know 
Dr. Joel Neerum was when he was a health director was just fanatic about the mechanical biosecurity about the people and the trucks and the supplies and doing this correctly and sanitation and I worked with Gordon Dr. Gordon Sprunk on the airborne side so we developed air filtration and then just recently we've put on this feed biosecurity approach where all of our soft farms we manage are now using a feed mitigant in their diets all year round and so that collective approach has allowed us to report publicly that uh, now that we're you know roughly seven seven I think it was seven point seven percent infections last year, which is the best we've ever done. Now that could change tomorrow, but I thought it would be a good example of how you know this isn't just theoretical. This actually might work if you do it and you do it right. It might have some value, and so that's kind of. You know, you you just gotta you gotta give you gotta show some data, right? You just can't go up there and swag things. Right. I think that that gives it more credibility if you're willing to show your own numbers, and uh, the numbers support what you're saying. So numbers don't lie. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm, I'm I enjoy a good swag uh, as much as the next person, but at <laughs> some point, as you put it earlier, the rubber meets the road. Yeah. And and when you've yeah. got the data behind it, I think that's a great place to leave it. Dr. Scott D. Uh, continue to serve the industry through some fantastic research and sharing your insights. Uh, very, very good set of, uh, of observations to offer this time. And of course, as I mentioned, if folks haven't read the paper uh, published in the Journal of Transboundary and Emerging Diseases. Dr. D., thanks for joining us. Thank you, Andy. You can read more of our coverage of the latest research in animal health and nutrition in the September edition of Feedstuffs, hot off the digital presses. You can find our latest issues and past editions by visiting Feedstuffs.com and clicking on Digital Editions. Thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Tobig's Norsven. Tobig's Norsven's approach of breeding pigs for enhanced natural robustness to disease challenge is a viable solution for disease control. You can learn more about Topics Norsven and their natural breeding approach by visiting the website topicsnorsven.us. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuff's In Focus. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and animal feed industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and the rest. Or check out our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day. And thanks for listening.